Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 248, a post-Thanksgiving Day extravaganza. I'm your host, Derek Moore. With me once again is my semi-permanent co-host, CEO of Zega Financial, Jay Pastorcelli. All right, Jay, shortened uh, session today, but we are not short on content, and I know a lot go- is going on. And I am long on stuffing. How do I, can I, I, I should have gone long stuffing, because I long stuffing. a lot of stuffing. It's tough to decide where you're going to really focus. So it sounds like, uh, you know, if that was a pie chart, your allocation to stuffing sounds like it was a little outsized. It was, a dis- mm. but I also had pie. So there's pie right. in my pie chart. I see where you're going with that, and I like it. Jay, I also like the fact that uh, we get to talk about Dave Ramsey a little bit. I, I mean, I don't know, but apparently there's there's a it's a big deal uh, in the, the Twitter, Twitter sphere, X sphere, and YouTube sphere. So Dave has a, a show where people can call in, and I don't know what he does. You know, I don't really listen to him or, or watch him or anything like that. But what he said the other day is this caller uh, gave him a call and said, okay, I have a question on the with safe withdrawal rate. It's like, okay, is 4% safe or 5.5% safe? And he said to Dave Ramsey, you know, I saw an article that is on your site. It's 4 to 4.5% of safe withdrawal rate. And I guess somebody who's normally on the show, some guy named George, he did a video that said, you know what, it might be 3%. So Dave Ramsey went nuts and he said, you know, look, if you could do 8% forever, forever is what he said. I'm using his words because I did watch it. It's a nine minute clip. And he said, if you have good mutual funds earning 12% a year when the market is averaging 11.8%, don't know what time frames he's, he's using there. He says, look, if inflation's 4% and you're making 12, you're left with eight. You can always take that out. And he said a 4% withdrawal rate is stupid, only done by super nerds with calculators who don't have any money, but only have theories. I mean, I don't know where to start on this one. Derek, I want to start with super safe mutual funds that average 12% a year. Why don't we all just do that? Of course, Dave Ramsey, where is he getting this concept that that's the average market return? How is, how is that I mean, right? I don't know. I mean, real quickly, we could say, okay. I mean, I don't know what time period this is based upon. If you go back to 1928 and there's a difference between the average return versus the compounded annual growth rate, what you actually get, um, you know, and anyway, yeah, let's start there. Like there's, there's so many things to dig into. I'll, I'll let you go first. No, no, that's, so that, that's, that is a big one for me. The other one is, you know, inflation for my, and you got 12 and the equals eight. Like I'm not, I'm not, uh, so I'm just, sorry. I'm just a little baffled that he would go this way. Cause he's typically fairly conservative on information like this, by the way, quick little story about Dave Ramsey for me personally is that when my book buy and hedge the five iron rules for investing over the long term went to number one in the investing category. It was his book that I was ahead of. I say I, the authors, me being one of them for that book. So I don't know. I always feel like, ah, we got you, Dave. But that's besides the point. He does sell a lot more books than we do because of his classes. But Derek, I I don't know, uh, uh, you know, how to, I'm just digesting this. Like that seems like not great advice, right? You have, the thing I always think about when it comes to withdrawals is it's the sequence of when you take those withdrawals, right? There's a terminology we use in our business called sequence of withdrawals. And essentially what it tells you is, you know, and we've talked about this before, the riskiest time of your investment life is the day you retire because at that point you're now no longer putting money in to the pot, you're taking money out. And, uh, you know, you can have some really bad timing with the markets and, you know, you're taking money out in a declining market. And if you're taking too much out, you can't recover that. You know, I, I don't know if you know this. So maybe I'm going to take a little step back. The end number of what a portfolio has is irrelevant to the order of returns of the market. So it doesn't matter. Let's say the market is up, you know, 
1% through 10% for 10 years, right? It doesn't matter the order that that comes. You end with the same number, right? You could have the 10 first and then a one last or a five first and the six last. It doesn't matter. So if you had 10 years and each year was, you know, 1%, then the next two, then the next three, all the way through 10, it doesn't matter that the order of those things, you end with the same amount of money, right? That's the way the math works. But when you're taking money out, now it matters. Now it matters because recovering from those losses is uh, you can't make up what you've taken out depending on the order that it happens because you're reducing your balance all the way through. So in our field, we call this sequence of returns. And so uh, the, the sequence of returns and withdrawals, what do we call it? Sequence of withdrawals? No, I don't remember what we call it. I got myself all backwards. But my point is that you take too much out and you don't have a straight 12%, even if it's this, this world that Dave Ramsey in that says good mutual funds produce 12% a year. I'm not sure what world that is. Um, again, even if that happens, the sequence by which you take that money out um, will cause this to fail, right? It's just, it could be potentially too, too large. So A, it's too much of a projection of how much you're, I'm going to call it principal. It's not really principal. Your principal makes. And second, taking too much out can be really detrimental in those years when it goes down. So I would actually say that's that's pretty, you know, poor advice to tell people like count on 12, so take out eight. Well, we did a piece at the, and, and I can I can link to it, but you might remember January of 2020. I did a piece and I and I put it on the Zega site. Yeah, I'll link to it because uh, people can see it. And I said the S and P total return compounded annual growth rate by decade. And what you find is the 2010, so that's January 1st, you know, ending December 1st, uh, 2009. Whatever it was, the market was up until December 31st, 2019. And the competent annual growth rate, including dividends, assuming they're reinvested, was 13.33%. Okay, really good. The 2000s decade was an average annualized, and that's average annualized return uh, or competent growth rate. It was like minus 1% was your average annualized compounded growth rate for the 2000s. 80s and 90s, I won't go through all of these, but you know, 80s and 90s, if you go, it's like 17.68 for the 80s, 18.30. The point is, Jay, that you, you never really know if somebody retires and they're withdrawing money, like what they're going to get. If they retired and you had the 80s and the 90s, okay, probably pretty darn good. If you retired in, you know, December 31st of 2000 uh, or 1999, probably a rough go over the next 20 years because you had major drawdowns, Jay. Yeah, not so good. And actually, your net returns are negative in that scenario, right? If you're just straight up market returns. So minus 1% a year, like you said. Yeah, 60s, 70s on your chart, you got a 7.8, a 5.8 in there, right? So like when you look at these time frames, Derek, you're right. It's, you you know, if you could tell me the decade that we're going to average 19%, great, that I'm going to do something different in that decade than the minus 1%, right? So, um, yeah, I think this is all, uh, you know, kind of, I, you know, you didn't comment on Dave. I'll let you comment on Dave. I just, I it, like, it irks me sometimes when people say things that could get somebody in trouble. And somebody has followed, well followed as, as Dave Ramsey. I disagree with some of the stuff on the investment side for, for him. And I, I disagree that everybody should pay off their house. I know it's, it's, it's a sort of a contrarian take, but you know, that, that's one of those things where if you pay off your house and we've talked about this with, with new retirees too, where they take all their, their assets and they, they pay off the house. Well, then you have all your money in an illiquid asset. And the only way to get it out is to take, a new loan, but when you're retired, you're not making as much. So it gets a little, the other thing too, is that I was just thinking about this, Jay, you know, somebody who's retired, he's implying that you're, I'm, I'm not saying implying because he's giving a, a, an equity type return that you're hundred percent in stocks as a retiree. Like that sort of flows against everything <laughs> on, on the advice. I mean, and, and you and I, would probably say that I don't, I mean, this is me personally. I don't like the, uh, the target date funds. I don't necessarily think that people should be in as much bonds as they are. 
But really, you're going to be 100% equities unhedged? Okay, right? It's a good point. It's definitely another additive point. That's if like, yeah, right. You're in retirement, sure, buy the S&P. Own equity risk, right? Like we just saw what equity risk could do to you last year. We also saw what bond risk could do to you. But in, in all fairness to bonds, and I'm usually not very fair to them, but in all fairness to bonds, that was a, a unique year last year. It wasn't unforeseen, but it was a unique year and what happened. So, but like, I don't know, what what's the bond fund that's going to make you 12% a year? That's right. I'm waiting to find out. And in out. 2008, even the AGG got hit because it had more MBS, mortgage-backed securities in there. And from my book, Broken Pie Chart, shameless plug, you got to plug yours, I'll plug mine. By the way, what great what great books to buy. We're getting into uh, Black Friday. We're getting into uh, you know Christmas season. I would buy each of those books. Buy two copies. Keep one for yourself. Give one away. But I had in there target date funds that were down thirty to fifty percent, and the, and without a, and not even a, a retirement date that was too far out in the future. So anyway, I, but the other thing too is, and I'm glad you brought up that point about the sequence of returns has no bearing of the order as long as you aren't taking money out. And I'll also add, if you're not bringing money in, if you're bringing money in or taking money out, the sequence does matter. But I think the point too is that, look, I mean, if you have a, a minus, imagine a 2008 type year, where you're down 37%. So okay, now, you, now you're down 37% and then you take money out. You know, As you're taking money out, as the market's recovered, it's doing so on a lower balance. So yeah, I don't know. This, it doesn't make any sense to me. I don't, I don't know where he's going with this. Maybe that's why I passed him in, you know, when my I don't, <laughs> I'm sure his is still Just above kidding. both of ours combined. I'm sure. <laughs> his podcast is certainly above uh, uh, the Birkin pie chart. You know, he's, I think his, so the way they do it, I mean, there's, there's sort of like a business category and there's a, I don't know, there's like an investments category. I don't know. But uh, his, his most certainly is, I'm sure, in the top 10. Ours is not. Although we do break the, the top uh, 250 here and there. All right. So what else can we go to? I, I think I'm done with this. I mean, it's, it's uh, it, by the way, though, I was thinking about this because I, I was like, okay, well, well, maybe so I'm not, not done. done. It just, yeah. <laughs> we, we yeah, should just do out. an anti-Dave uh, Ramsey podcast one day and we just go through everything that he recommends. <laughs> no, the house thing bothers me too. I'm like, not everybody should pay off their house. It just, no, there, I there's good debt that. and bad debt. I mean, it's, of course. And, and it's a whole other thing with, you know, if, if you don't pay off the house, like, are you buying speedboats with that money or are you, you investing it? Um, but Jay, I looked and I said, you know, how's, how have the markets done since, cause I don't have the, the decade yet for the, the decade to date, I guess we'll call it. And so if I looked at the markets, the first day of January, 2020, we're now November, what are we? 24th of 2023. And I don't know, I haven't done this for a while. The, the markets are up about 40% on a cumulative basis. And if you do the annualized compounded growth rate, that's probably high 8% right there. And with dividends, it's probably over 10%. You know, I just doing this, this quick math. Jay, I guess I would, I would put the question to our listeners, and, and uh, I know you know the answer, but if I asked everybody, hey, are you really happy with the last, you know, since uh, January of 2020 with your investment returns? I'll bet you most people said, no way. But that's... You're getting, I mean, that's, that's pretty good return. That's a really good return. Yeah. And look, 2020 and 2021 were monster years, obviously. Right. I said monster, right. It's, they were, they were strong. And then, you know, we had last year, which was the opposite of that. And so uh, I think there's this, you know, psychological hangover uh, from that, you know, Derek, if I asked people how they felt about their returns this year, uh, I'm not sure if they would feel good about it, right? There's been a lot of turmoil and a lot of headlines, but you you know where the S and P is for the year, like how, how what it's up. Actually, what point? is it? I I'll, I'm guessing over. It's between 15 and 20, I think. Yeah, I mean, just the the index itself, the S P index itself, is up uh, just over 18 and a half percent, throwing dividends, and you're knocking on yeah. the door of 20 percent. 
The market's Nobody's up 20% happy. this year, Derek. <laughs> I don't, nobody's feeling like, wow, it feels great to be invested right now. At least the folks I talk to, at least, you know, I, I will say I haven't had anybody calling me uh, to discuss their fear of, you know, of, of why they're down so much this year. But I would say, like, this has been a really strong year, uh, uh, you know, and in, in you, when you, when you, I don't know, in the, in the hierarchy of where it is, but, you know, if, if we end at 20% for the year, that's, that's kind of great. I don't think anybody was really counting on that. I know from our uh, end of year predictions last year, I don't think anybody was even our most bullish, wasn't it a plus 20? Maybe our most bullish person. Uh, I've got to figure those out soon. We'll share those with the audience and we'll be up to, to do them. Yeah. Don't you think too that a lot of times investors are fighting the last battle, meaning they probably adjusted their portfolios, especially, you know, people doing it on their own. It's, it's just a generalization, but it's really hard. And to stay, uh, you know, emotionally or not get emotional about the, the returns and say, well, 2022 is bad. I'm going to go into the money market. I'm going to hide out there. That's a better thing. No, you know, your market's up 20% this year. Or maybe people will uh, eschew bonds, you know, avoid bonds altogether forever now. And just because they were, you know, they were down. Like, I think a lot of times investors are fighting the last battle. Yeah. I mean, you don't forget it. You know, that's what's most fresh in your mind. So I don't think that's wrong. So anyway, back to the the interesting year that we're having, right? And you, as you're going through the decades here and the kind of the average returns, it is not, and it has not been, you know, a terrible market since the beginning of 2020. And remember what oh, has happened it's crazy. in there, right? Fastest market decline in, you know, February to, to March, right? Market dropped 35% peak to trough in a period of three and a half weeks. We all lived through that. Then you have this historic, you know, bond decline that we experienced last year. Like, you know, there's definitely been some turmoil in interesting times. And to say, you know, look, on average, still up 8 to 10% in equities, it's pretty great. And I would say that was a hard-fought 8 to 10% for everybody, right? It took a lot of, you know, if, if you were someone that was watching and staying in touch pretty regularly, it probably didn't feel great. So, you know, and then, but you look and you're like, oh, not bad. But still not. 12% as our, we already talked about that part before. Oh, oh, it wasn't 12% so far. Huh? That's weird. <laughs> it, 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 I it's not. 12% I mean, it could be, it so could be, you know, I want to find could, you, could you imagine like, let, let's say you had somebody December 31st of 1999, they decide they're going to go off the grid, go backpacking in the, in the mountains of uh, the Chilean mountains. And they're still there. And they've and and then you have somebody who's been watching intently CNBC every day, eight hours a day. Like that person will come back and be like, "Oh, cool, all right, great, I'm up forty percent." The other person's like, "Oh, this has been a horrible market." Like, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, I think that's true, right? It just kind of goes to show that you got to kind of keep the emotion emotion out of it, right? I mean, we we talk sometimes about it's that hard a lot, to do nothing. You know, emotion, sometimes it's really hard to do but, nothing. In fact. Look at the the two thousands when the average annualized return was down. You know, you were you lost essentially one percent a year. That same scenario: the guy who goes into the mountains of uh, Chilean mountains and somebody who's watching it every day, they come back and then they'd say, "Why? Why, why am I down one percent every year?" Oh wow, all that happened. Cool. I didn't. I'm kind of flat, but I'm glad I didn't lose more. Like, I think the hard thing sometimes for investors is to do less. Do less. Do less of what you think you need to do. So, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, all right. Can, yeah, we, we'll move on from this. So next thoughts. Uh, there is a, I saw a chart. This was on X from Isabel Nett uh, and a source Goldman Sachs. Jay, you, you have a problem with this chart, but let me just explain it for the listeners. Uh, what it is, is it's the S&P 500 seasonality from 1950 through 2022. And it's the idea of in, a, in an average year, a market's up certain points, certain months of the year, and then we're only through November, wherever we are right now, wherever they did this. And the, they're saying this is sort of from a seasonality basis, you typically see a surge near the end of the year. 
So I don't know. Did we already see that surge in November? Well, November was pretty was pretty great. So when it, when I that's true. So let me let me let me talk about this chart for a minute and explain to you why I don't love it. I listen. I am someone that believes that seasonality certainly exists within the market. We see it all the time, uh, and sure that exists. And in this chart, I guess it looks at you know the average returns. Hey, it it has kind of the average at nine percent, Derek. Seasonality since nineteen fifty to twenty twenty two. Says the average, it shows like the average path of the market to its average of nine percent. Oh, it's not twelve. Derek, that's not okay. twelve but as far they as didn't, I'm that's concerned. not the right mutual fund. Apparently, it's you needed 12. the 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 plus four percent oh, mutual we, fund. They didn't have the good mutual funds in this stuff. <laughs> so, uh, and look, it, it, it's strong in the first quarter generally, right? You got this flattening out even through the second quarter, strong, and then this flattening of the third quarter, and then strong fourth quarter. Yeah. Look, in our time of investing, we've absolutely observed that. And when you look at this year, the peaks are higher and the dips are are lower, but it still follows along that path, except for the point that this year we just said we're already up 18, 19, 20 for the year. And this chart is kind of, I would say, purposefully reducing down that magnitude to fit what is happening on the average. So this is something, Derek, that you and I would call a chart crime. I am absolutely flagging the chart crime for, for this year, that this should show that we are double what the market does on average. Now, seasonally, it is following a similar path, although it got way ahead of itself in July. And then the dip that we saw for September, October was pretty dramatic, down way below it. Uh, so I don't know, like if we were going to finish at 9%, I would tell you we're in for a rough December. I'm not saying that, but just my point is like this year is following the seasonality, but this is also an extreme year that's already well above what the average year looks like from, from uh, you know, how it goes month to month. I, this must be even day to yeah, day. Yeah, I, I don't know. do the math on this, so, because it looks like it's- So I guess what you don't know is- have we already made the move and we'll be flat? I mean, we, who knows, right? We don't know this, but yeah. That's right. Like, did we get this big, you know, pop up in November that was the pop that you could see sometimes yeah. in this December, right? I do like the smoothness of the December line, Derek, right? There's a, I mean, it looks generally speaking from seasonality perspective that December is a fairly smooth, you know, market. It's and actually has a nice little, angle to it up into the right right so that's it looks good i mean you know does that tell us seasonally there's low volatility in the market from this point i mean on for the rest of the year no i mean it, it is possible now no, bloomberg had a chart and they said the s p 500 uh, tracked one of its best november gains on record the index has gained more than eight percent in november fewer than 10 times since 1928 so this is going back to 1928 and yeah we we're up Greater than eight percent, according to uh, uh, I don't know when. Yeah, this is as the close, November twenty second. So that was that was Wednesday. So uh, yeah, we don't know what ha- what you know. We'd have to do the research to see what happens after we have an eight percent November, whether that continues on or not. But yeah, I mean, I well, no, we know, right? I mean, this is the thing with, uh, but over a long enough period, when you average all these out, I'm sure, I'm sure this is a, a pretty pretty stable chart. So we'll see. You mentioned volatility though. You and I were fascinated because uh, we watched the VIX index. We watched the VVIX. The VVIX is sort of the volatility of options on the VIX. The VIX is looking at the implied volatility of options on the S&P 500. We saw something that was really fascinating. Was it two days ago? My days are kind of going together where the VVIX was under 80, and all of a sudden it shot up. It was a, just an odd move. And you and I were messaging back and forth, like, what, what, what's going on? Well, we pulled up the, the time and sales, looked at a, a little deeper on what's going on. Jenna, you were, you were uh, I think both of us were a little, I mean, we were looking at what the trade flows were. And why don't you tell us what, what we saw there? I'll let you take that. Yeah. So as we, so the, the, what the VIX, what the clue was, was all of a sudden the volatility of the VIX itself popped up, meaning people were willing to pay 
more in premium for VIX options than they were, you know, just five minutes ago, right? So when we saw that pop, we took a look at the uh, uh, where all the volume was coming in, and it was it looked like a whole heck of a lot of volume on the December monthly, which happens to be December twentieth, the December monthly contract for the VIX options at around the seventeen and eighteen strike. And the, you know, the point there was that, you know, what we observed was telling us that, you know, there were, there was quite a bit of buying on that 18 strike. And it was because it was costing about 50 cents. And so the idea was that, you know, when you look at that 18 strike option, very few times in the last few years, have you seen that VIX call trade below 50 cents? So when that, you know, when all of a sudden the volume started coming in on that, it made a move in the implied volatility of the VIX itself. So what what is, you know, this is one of those things that uh, Derek and I would tell you some of our highest tuition payments had to, so those of you that listen, you know what we're talking about when we say we paid tuition, came at the education of trading options on the VIX. It is not for the faint of heart. It is not for the inexperienced. And even when you get one or two of them right, in general, it's going to be hard to get them all right. You're going to get more wrong than right trading VIX options. Um, But the idea here is that um, the reason why somebody would pay. So, by the way, VIX was trading at the time around 13, right? The index was around 13 and a half. And they were buying 18 strike options out to December 20th. So they had about 28 days at the time that we saw this volume hitting. And what it tells you is that someone's willing to say, look, I think break even on the VIX is going to be above, for me, 18 and a half, right? They are wagering, wagering, betting, I'm going to say, speculating is probably the better word to say, is that the options will appreciate in value between now and December 20th so that they'll be able to exit those options at higher than 50 cents, just like any trade would be. It doesn't necessarily mean they're counting on the VIX getting above 18 and a half, but it has to look like the VIX will get above 18 and a half, and those options will start to increase in value. So, uh, by the way, uh, they have not done so over the next three days. So I'll say two days. So that day, that was uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, we saw a little pop again today. Yes, but still the VIX has actually continued to decline. So, uh, but those options have held their value. Uh, they're still around 44 by 49 cents, so slightly lower than where all that volume was on Tuesday. So again, sorry, I'm off on a little tangent here when it comes to the VIX options, but just recognize what when when that volume comes in, it tells you that somebody is bracing for a pop in the VIX price, the pop in the VIX index, which typically comes from rapid sell-offs. It could also come from, you know, speculation on the on the on the on the put side of the VIX because the market, you know, maybe can go you know, the market can go higher and the VIX go even lower. You know, it's down a point since we saw the VIX itself is down a point since the day we saw those go off. We're here at 12.46 on the VIX index on this Friday, the 24th. And it's one of those things. It's a, we haven't been this low in years. And so it's like, it's not an awful speculative bet to place, but you just have to know how to trade that, right? It may seem pretty obvious out of the gate, but you got to watch for, how that VIX ends up marking, and you have to understand the relationship to the futures. And I know, Derek, you've talked about in the past, but that's my general gist of what we observed in the market. And then maybe, Derek, if you want to comment on that, and then maybe we could talk about what even two days later, what other trades may look like in that space. The VIX is, when people see the VIX low, they they say it's it's a great time to buy. To buy meaning you can't buy the VIX. You can't buy the spot fix, the one you see on CNBC. It's an index. There's no options on it. The options are on the futures. But it's the idea of, oh, let me let me buy some calls on the VIX. And the idea is, you know, as you said, you pop up. And if it pops up enough, you you can you can be profitable there. But what we've seen historically is that a low VIX almost begets a low VIX. Meaning it's, you know, you can't really look at this like like you would a, a stock. Like, oh, it's down at support, so it's got to go up. It doesn't really work that way. So you also don't know, I mean, that trade, 
on the surface. And I don't remember what the the total, I mean, it was, it was in the millions of dollars. That was a, a really big piece that, that, the, that was taken down there. Oh yeah. They spent $10 million. They traded 200,000. What we don't know for is, 50 cents. are they running a $10 billion dollar. long equity strategy? And they're like, ah, oh, you know, we're up for the year. Let's, let's, uh, Let's make sure we don't give back the gains. Well, you know, maybe this is a, in their opinion, a cheap way to hedge. Or it was part of uh, maybe their short volatility, and they said, you know what, we're short vol, but we'll we'll buy this to hedge. So we never really know why they're doing it, who's doing it. Um, but I think what's interesting, and and you're going to go there next, is just thinking about how low the VIX is right now, how low break-evens are. And maybe you can explain that a little bit, Jay, on, on let's say if you were to trade one today for December, like where the VIX would have to go to break even or to make money above that. Yeah. You know, it's it's uh, like you said, we, we've definitely traded a lot of VIX in our time. And I've said it, you've said it. And it's one of those things that understanding the relationship to the future. And I'll just uh, I'm going to make a minor, I'm not going to say correction because what you said was accurate, but just maybe a minor clarification. When you said there aren't options on the VIX index, it's actually there are options on the VIX, but those options are based on the pricing of the futures. So, for example, it's the only thing I know where you could have negative intrinsic value are options on the VIX index. And it's because they're priced off of the futures, which are uh, a little more... Uh, predictive than the mathematical representative of the VIX itself, right? The VIX itself is an equation. It's an index. That's why you can't own it. But there are futures. So sorry for that little bit of a clarification, Derek, only because people might be like, hey, I see options on the VIX. I thought you said I couldn't trade it. Yes, the the pricing of those options are based on uh, the futures. So there's a few tricks that you can use to figure out if you don't actually know how to see the futures themselves, right? The 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 futures of the VIX. You know, you always kind of look for where the call and put are at parity, where they're the same value. So right now, if you were looking at the December 20th options on the VIX, it's around the 14 strike, right? The 14 call would cost you, you know, a buck oh two, and the 14 put would cost you about a buck oh nine. So they're about the same. So that tells you the future is probably right around that 14 level. So uh, interestingly enough, so that's the first thing about the futures. The second thing, the interesting thing enough is when you look at break-evens, that actually seems to be the level that if you wanted to, if you didn't want to put a small amount of money like that uh, large trader had done on Tuesday, if you want to actually put in a position that had a lower break-even you know, you could, I'm just looking at the prices here, you could buy a 12 strike call, it means the right to, uh, you know, sell at 12 for about two bucks. So if your strike is, if you have a call with a strike at 12, and the premium is $2, your break even is 14. So that means if when the VIX settles, the index uh, ends up settling on Usually it's a Tuesday, right? Is December 20th a Tuesday, Derek? Let me just look at my trusty little, uh, uh, I think they still do those on Tuesdays, right? Sorry. The, uh, we, you and I have like almost like sworn off trading VIX options, right? Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a Wednesday actually. Maybe that's, uh, so that's uh, Wednesday the 20th. So uh, if you're, if you think the VIX, the index in this scenario, not the future, because the future will eventually match to the index because the index is the math. If you think it'll be above 14, you could buy this 12 strike call for $2. And if at the end of that period, uh, you know, you would be up the difference between 14 and wherever the VIX landed. By the way, that's not a, a, a crazy speculative trade. I mean, look, I realize the VIX is at 12 and a half. The VIX index is at 12 and a half. And we've had lots of days this year from June on where the market, where the VIX has been below 14, right? You've got periods in the middle of June. You've got almost the entire period uh, of July that it was below 14. You had a little bit of a dip there at the end of August right, where you kind of stayed below 14, and now you're below 14. So to think like, oh, obviously the VIX is going to be above 14, it's not obvious. 
it may seem like it is because it does spend most most of its time most of its time above that. But to Derek's point a minute ago, you know, low volatility begets low volatility. Um, there was a study that Derek and I used to reference uh, years ago where it was, you know, once you kind of cross certain thresholds, you stay below certain certain thresholds for a while. For us, we focus on the 16 level and the 13 level is kind of key data points. I should say 16 and 14. Uh, we've since modified that number. So, you know, staying below 14 is, dev- I think 14.2 is our number actually. Staying below 14 is very, very possible. So while it doesn't feel like a bad trade to buy the 12 strike calls between now and December 20th, there's absolutely nothing that that's that's a lock. We could see volatility continue to trick lower. Vol can definitely go down from here. So, you know, just one of those things that we keep an eye on. Uh, and it's really interesting as, you know, the VIX is closing at a level that it hasn't seen since January of 2020. Right. So, uh, well, I don't know. Anything else you want to add to that, Derek? I went down a little rabbit hole. Yeah. Uh, first, I'll, I'll just, uh, for the listeners, this is reason number 58. You got to be tra- careful trading VIX. Uh, December 20th is, is, in fact, a Wednesday. I think you you clarified that. The last day to trade those is the 19th. And so what the VIX does, there's sort of an opening. Uh, I don't even want to get into this. It's like an opening pricing rotation function on that morning. And so let's say you're like, oh, yeah, last day to trade is the Tuesday, is the day before and your options are in the money, meaning you're profitable, they can actually change the, the, what's called the settlement price that, that Monday, that Wednesday morning, and you could be unprofitable all of a sudden, or vice versa. So it's a, it's a little oddity there. And you know, most, most options these days are, we have a lot of weekly options, we have a lot of daily options. When we get to the indexes, we've talked about those before, and those are PM settlement. Last day to trade them is the day that uh, that they expire, but the monthlies on things like the S and P, the old monthlies, and then you have your a lot of the VIX options go through that opening rotation. That the interesting thing too is, you know, if you think about it, it's two bucks, and the VIX closed at twelve forty six. That's about a sixteen percent cost. So you know, think about that. Just put that in in, in your mind. If you had uh, whatever amount of dollars that you're going to put into this, it's 16%. You could lose if the VIX goes nowhere, if the VIX settles exactly where it is today. So, you know, there, it's, it's kind of a rich trade. I know it seems cheap on the surface, but it's, it's kind of rich. And, but yeah, no, on the same way, Jay, like if there's any blow up in equity markets, any sort of upset, it seems like that would be that would be sort of an interesting uh, trade to have on. Now, I will say there's some seasonality. We talked about seasonality earlier. That week before Christmas and and sort of the two or three weeks before Christmas in December, we used to call it. It was the the kink in the uh, the chart of the the expected volatility. And historically, and I don't know what will happen this year, but volatility actually really drops in let's say a just normal run of the mill year where nothing's really happening, you'll see it kind of drop. In the VIX futures curve, you'll see that little kink uh, where that VIX future, whether it's a week or two weeks before uh, Christmas, actually is lower than the rest. So it's it's kind of subtle. But yeah, I mean, it's, if you here's the thing too, Jay. Like if, if you would have told me a couple of years ago, oh yeah, yeah, a break even on, on a, an, a monthly VIX option is actually 14. You'd be like, oh, wow. Yeah. Anything happens. That seems pretty, pretty interesting. But again, it's your cost is 16% of the, uh, you know, to sort of get into it. Yeah. Bowie, uh, interesting going out another month, adding to that trade, right? Like, let's say I took a look at the January 17th options, right? The break even on that one, those 12 strike calls are trading at 375. So now your break-even is 15.7. So it's like twice the move up when you add, when you double the time, right? So now you're in the 15 range. The future, I'm just looking where parity is on this thing. Uh, Yeah, maybe a buck. 
sorry, sorry, at 15 and a half is kind of where it is. So, you know, again, back to the the concept here is now you've got two months for it to get above, you know, your strike, but that strike has gone up twice as much. You need it to move up twice as much, right? And the cost on that you just is four bucks, right? So doing your math on uh, you know, the 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 cost of this whole thing, it's it's you know, it's a it's a third, right? So sorry, sorry, yeah, it's a third. No, it's a third. Yeah. So yeah. So you know, we call them speculative trades and, you know, they're there to teach you a lesson if you get them wrong. <laughs> Lessons we've learned. The thing, though, is a hedge. It's with the VIX at these levels. It uh, It's easier to hedge than, you know, let's say VIX is at 25 and then you're buying VIX calls. Well, then your break even is is much higher. So, you know, that this type of trade is for something that's un, unexpected that's coming out of the blue, that's going to really drive fear into the markets. That's kind of what this trade is. So, all right. I think we've, we've gone through this enough, but it was just, I thought it was really interesting. Like you messaged me and, I, and you're like, look at the VVIX. I'm like, what, what is going on there? That doesn't even make any sense. Cause if you can imagine for the listeners, the chart was like down, sloping down, sloping down, sloping down. And then all of a sudden this little shoot up on the intraday chart, you just don't see that. And the VIX was did not move at all. The markets didn't move at all, but VIX moved. And you and I immediately are like, well, somebody's buying VIX calls, right? So, Yeah, and the, the reason we were paying so close attention to it was I think we've talked about some of the option data points and triggers that we watch in the market is that there is kind of an inflection point at the VIX below 80. And so, you know, it kind of touched it, dipped below for half a second. And then, you know, we saw that rocket higher. So, I mean, there's a reason that 80 is kind of that inflection point for us and we didn't close below it, but that's why we were watching. And I think, you know, it just goes to show how the options market has its own little dynamic. And, uh, you know, we'll see if this one turned out to be, you know, right or not, which is the someone taking a speculative bet on uh, some sort of a short-term sell-off in the market. All right. Last thing I wanted to cover before we get to uh, some recommendations is uh, congratulations, world. Advanced economies and emerging and developing economies, both uh, sovereign debt, according to the FT, Financial Times, is close to historic highs, central government debt as a percent of GDP. If people could see this chart, you would see advanced economies are probably about 110% of debt, uh, debt to GDP, which means if your GDP is just rounded off, 30 trillion, that means your debt's above 30 trillion. And then emerging and developing economies are, I'll call it, I don't know, 70%-ish. So this is one of those things where it's it's a problem, but I'll let you know when it becomes a real problem. Like I, I think it's a problem. I think it's it's a very big problem. But the hard thing for a lot of investors looking at stuff like this and wanting to bet against, let's say, a, a sovereign debt, you know, some problem in sovereign debt, is I always joke around and I say, I thought debt was a problem in the 80s. Like you could be right on your thesis, but be wrong on your timing. And I don't know. I mean, if if I knew this would be one of the biggest trades ever, if I knew exactly when this was going to cause something to happen. But it's it's a problem, Jay. And by the way, yeah. Uh, let me take the other side. I, I don't disagree with sure. you. Let me, let me take the other side of this. What do you say to those folks that said, look, we can just always print money, right? The United States can always print money and sell more bonds just to kind of capture all this. Like, can't we just pay off our debt by printing money? Can what, Like, what's the problem there? So we sort of tried this during 2020. And 2021, we sent trillions of dollars of checks checks to people. We we printed money. I could I could give I could send a million dollars, print it up, send a million dollars to every household in the U.S., and it would only cause more inflation. So it's like, I mean, would that make the debt go away? Like I'm saying, the U.S. could just pay off all the people the debt, right? The sovereign debt that it has, and. Like, why, why couldn't it just do that? Be like, hey, uh, you know, we have no problem now meeting any of our interest obligations and any debt that we have outstanding. We're just not going to reissue it. We're fine. We'll always be able to pay our debt because we could just print money. Yeah. Like not no, I mean, checks. But when you print money, you, 
literally printing dollars to put it into the Federal Reserve and they wire money out. Like, why can't I they mean, do that? the way they do it now is they issue more and more bonds. I mean, that, that's the way we're doing it now. We just issue more and more treasuries. The Fed, uh, I mean, the Fed stopped buying treasuries, but enough banks take uh, treasuries on. And the federal government takes that money and uses it to pay the interest. I mean, the if you actually printed physical, you would destroy the dollar. You would have inflation. You would have... But the way they're doing it now is, I mean, they print money, but they just keep issuing debt. But what if everybody does it? But like, well, no, but what if every, you know, developed economy said, okay, we're all going to print dollars to pay off all of our debt and, you know, dollars compared to everything else. So all the currencies are going to kind of go up equally or drop equally. So we'll keep our relative strength. Why can't we just do it? I mean, you, you can't really do it. Now, you could default on the debt. You could default. And by the way, all right, contrarian Derek, uh, conspiracy theory Derek would say, you know what? They're going to come out with a digital dollar and they're going to say, oh, those other dollars and all that debt, we're going to push that off to the side. That's an, We'll silo that off. And now we're doing it new. This is the digital dollar. And now all the new debt that's coming out, this is the new currency that we use. And that other stuff, the Fed will just buy it all and they'll put it on their balance sheet. Like that, that's, you know. I don't know if it's a conspiracy theory, but I mean, it's, that's the, that's the, you know, and I, I think it's, it's like changing the rules of the game halfway through though. Right. Like that's, that changes. Like, this is why I feel bad for people who are betting against this stuff, because like, imagine you, you bet against all the banks going down because of the balance sheets. Oh no, the, the fed did it again. They created a new program with a new acronym and oh yeah, those bonds that are trading at $80 instead of a hundred. We'll just buy them back at 100. We'll put them on our books, you know? I mean, uh, 2020, yeah, the bond's really, really in trouble. That's okay. We'll buy bond ETFs. Never done that before, but why not? We'll buy it. Japan's been buying equities for years. I'm just saying, like, this is, um, people aren't wrong who look at this stuff, but you have to decide as an investor, like, what is it that you want? And if you want to build wealth and you want to build wealth for retirement, then you should do that. If you want to, you know, start a movement or, you know, to bet against everything, then then do that. But just understand that you could be right on stuff and be wrong, but you could be right and they could change the rules and you'll be wrong anyway. Like it's, it's a hard. I think that's, that's it, right? The, ch- the changing of the rules to me is the, is the big question, right? Like you just, they're gonna change the rules, right? If things get really nasty, they're going to change the rules because I think they should feel they're obligated to do the most good to the most folks. And uh, generally, most folks are not, you know, shorting the U.S., you know, uh, economic strength, right? The average Joe doesn't do that kind of a trade, right? So those are big banks, and they'll find themselves on the wrong side of that. And or they'll be right and not still not get paid. And for a long, long time, they'll have to still just wait for them to be made whole. So I go back to the movie, uh, you know, the big short all the time. Right. I just, I just think about that, how those guys were right for a long, long time and just didn't matter. Right. Larger institutions just kind of waited until they were properly positioned to then take care of them. Yeah. No, I was actually, I'm glad you went there. Cause I remember Michael Burry was, his phone was losing money, losing money. And you and I both know people who were betting against, not in the same way, but they were shorting housing stocks, you know, in 2005, 2006, uh, saying it's, it's going to collapse, it's going to collapse. And, uh, you know, you, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. I mean, that's the thing. I do wonder, though, I, and uh, we, we don't have to <laughs> give this like a 10-second answer, Jay, but I just think about 2008, 2009, like if that happens today, do they create a new vehicle or uh you know fed program to just take on all all that the toxic debt maybe they did that with tarp but i wonder if they would do it differently and just yeah yeah just, they, i think they, they would i think they would just take it all and i think they would start buying they would buy etfs of course yeah. they would i mean that what what they yes the answer is yes we don't have to go long yes they would They've shown it multiple times. Yeah, that so would. that's good luck betting against that stuff. And I say that with with all sincerity. Like, you just have to decide, like, what is it that you want to do? And uh, all right, Jay, any any recommendations this week? 
So I've uh, I've been doing a little throwback, uh, and so started watching what I would consider a top ten show for me. Restarted watching Men. Never, no, I've never watched it. Remember that one? Whoa! You should watch that one. How many seasons? You should watch Mad, Mad, Mad Men. Men. I'm gonna look it up. Oh, I don't know. Seven, eight. Yeah, it's got to be Mad Men seasons. Here we go. Seven. Yeah. All right. That's a big commitment. You'll enjoy it. All right. Um, I might enjoy check it. it out. I mean, that's my. I, yeah, I, I told you. Have you watched uh, what's the one that I watched? Breaking Bad, which I actually wound up liking. Yeah, that's that's the other no. one. I know you told me I, I haven't been willing to make that commitment, and I I know maybe that maybe that's the alternative. I still, you know, we tried, but we haven't tried again since you said get to the end yeah, of the you first. Just, you season. just have to get to it. And be- I know I'm in the minority on this one. By the way, anybody that's made the commitment has always said the same thing. I just haven't. Yep, I didn't have I didn't actually have a, a recommendation this week, but one of our friends of the program, listeners, Michael, had told me uh, two two things to check out. One is Silo on uh, Apple TV. And I, I lost the paper with the other one. I, I'd had it, but I'll have to bring that one next week. But that will that will get you by. I yeah. watched Silo. Not okay. bad. Silo was not All bad. Right. We'll, we'll Good job, Michael. Yeah. All right, Jay. Sadly, mm-hmm. uh, I think... Yeah, go ahead. Uh, wait, can I give... No, no. I, uh, sadly, no, we no. ran out of time yeah. to talk about the uh, Argentinian uh, presidential race. You got a new guy over there. Miley. Well, how's he going to bail them out of the trouble they're in? What's like, what's he going to do? What's his platform? Going to get rid of their version of the Fed. They're going to go to U.S. dollars instead of their own currency and a bunch of other stuff. I, I'm interested to see what happens because, you know, look, they Argentine, Argentina has uh, defaulted, what, seven, six, seven times already? They borrowed, I don't know how many millions of dollars from the IMF. Like whatever you've been doing, it hasn't been working. So maybe you try something else. But stuff will get broken. They'll they'll break yeah. stuff. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I mean, so the idea is, I mean, when when one of the only things that's ever worked, I don't know if it's worked long, long term, but you create a currency board to to battle like hyperinflation. And the currency board basically says, we guarantee an exchange rate of, of your currency into dollars. They sort of fix it or peg it. And then it sort of stops the, uh, it tries to stop the hyperinflation. But um, like, I don't know, maybe they default on the debt. Just default on it. Start over, use U.S. dollars. I'm interested, Jay. I'm interested to see start what over. So. All right. All right. They got any, uh, they got some mountains there, right? Can they get any like precious metals? Can they get any like... Uh, you know, metals that help the EV space maybe out of them. Did not prepare my uh, my EV mining global <laughs> maps for this program, Jay, but I you will look know? into that right. for next Sorry. time. But uh, all right, that's, that's going to be it for this week. Happy Thanksgiving, post-Thanksgiving, uh, uh, by the time everybody is reacting and listening to this. All right, Jay, thanks again. Talk to you soon. 